If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11 this morning, but the majority of our time, in fact, all of our time this morning is going to be just focused on verse 7. As I was studying for things this week, I came home, I think it was either Thursday night or Friday night, and turned on the news, um, listening to uh, a news broadcast, and they were talking about something that President Biden had recently said in regards to the conflict with Ukraine. He made a statement that was jolting. He said that we are the closest we've been to nuclear Armageddon since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, I wasn't alive when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. Some of you, I'm sure, were. Um, I remember hearing stories of what happened during that time. Fallout shelters were being, uh, being built. There were bomb shelters that individuals would dig in their backyards so people, if they heard air raid sirens or they, they thought that perhaps ICBMs had been launched, that they would go in there and hopefully have some sense of surviving. I know that there were... Um, even to this day, you can walk around downtown Pittsburgh and you can see, at least last time I was there, I saw one still, fallout shelter that had been placed up in certain buildings. So when the president said that we are the closest we've been to nuclear Armageddon since the Cuban Missile Crisis, that was a jolting thought for many of you. I remember when, again, I wasn't there, I didn't live through it, but I remember in high school, I did a report on the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it still stuck with me to this day because we were a hair's breadth from nuclear holocaust in the world. So we hear things like that, and in the, the, the days since, there has been efforts to sort of walk back some of those comments, try to calm and ease fears. Um, whether or not that's successful or not, I don't know. That's between you and how you feel about these things. But how are we to respond as Christians particularly about a statement like that? I mean, you think about nuclear Armageddon, the, the, the term that he used, nuclear Armageddon, and, and immediately you, comes into your mind images of, of the mushroom cloud over cities, desolation absolutely everywhere. Millions, billions perhaps, killed in a nuclear holocaust. You think of, of these end times type of movies that we think, apocalyptic type movies, and you see how people tend to turn on each other and, and, the, and, and how it becomes a sort of a dog-eat-dog world type of, of idea. And so we, we see what's portrayed in the media about these things. We hear things like that, and it causes us to wonder and to worry. How are we to respond when we think about the end of the world? Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 4. So again, I've been studying this all week. Biden makes these comments, and verse 7 just immediately comes to my mind. The end of all things is what? At hand. It's near. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? 
for the sake of your what? Prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter sort of launches into things with a sort of grim statement But as he walks into sort of a darker way of beginning this section, it ends with a glorious glance at the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the reality is, as pilgrims, we walk in a world that is unstable. We walk in a world that gives no promise or no hope. And as we walk in that world, the world that inhabits our journey as pilgrims, it can cause us to fear. We see Someone who maybe we think has gone unhinged, who has keys to a huge nuclear arsenal, and we worry. In fact, it can become so difficult that we begin to really lose our minds. So what does Peter focus us on? How does he seek to encourage us in those moments And the answer is he calls us to fulfill the purpose for which we are here on this earth to do. And so we're going to be looking at this week and next week, the pilgrim's purpose. And what is that purpose? That purpose is to glorify God in everything. And so we're going to see this week, next week, that we must seek to fulfill our purpose of glorifying God as a pilgrim on this earth. There are three things we're going to look at this week and next week, and we're only going to spend time today looking at the first point, and that is the urgency of the pilgrim's purpose. The urgency of the pilgrim's purpose. Why is it important, why is it necessary that we in everything would glorify God through Jesus Christ? Now, there are a number of answers to that question, and Peter is going to go through and describe those, but he begins by speaking of how urgent it is for us to do this. Why is it urgent? Well, the conclusion of history brings urgency to the pilgrim's purpose. The end of how many things? All things is at hand. It's interesting how when we looked at uh, chapter 4 and even into, into the last Uh, verses 18 through 22 of chapter 3, Peter has been focusing us on the truth of the gospel. How the gospel, the story of Christ's death and resurrection, brings hope to pilgrims, brings hope beyond death. And so it's almost somewhat abrupt in the way that he now all of a sudden turns and says, the end of all things is at hand. If you're reading through this, you're sort of like, what's going on here? Why is he bringing this to and to focus. And what he's doing is he's trying to show us that the message of the gospel that is our hope throughout this world, that message is urgently needed as we look at a world that is soon 
to come to its end. And when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he's speaking of the course of human history. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have ushered in the end of all things. All of human history before the cross was anticipating and leading up to the cross of Christ. The the most significant event in human history is what Christ accomplished through redeeming us from our sins. There is no greater historical event than the cross and the empty tomb. Both things come together to form the victory that Christ has won over sin. Everything that happened before the cross, God providentially worked in history to prepare for that so that, as Paul tells us, in the fullness of time, Christ came into the world. And so that event now being passed, all of human history now is an outworking of the cross of Christ. God is working His plan in history, which is, I've sort of seen this sort of, you know, cutely put, his story, working it out to bring about his plan. From the cross forward, each moment brings us closer to the end of all things. Everything after the cross has been downhill. It's interesting, I was mentioning to, to someone as they were coming in, uh, I was talking about, about the, that we have the end of all things and, and we ought not to be tied to this world and they made the comment, well, it's been a long end. Why has it, I mean, you think about it, it's been thousands of years, 2,000 years. It's been a long end. Why? Because God is long-suffering. He's patient and gracious. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is withholding His wrath so that His people will be saved. Will Christ lose any of His saints? No, they will all be saved. And so 2,000 years is God's gracious long-suffering to this world. So as John says in 1 John 2.18, children, it is what? The last hour. And this was written over 2,000 years ago. He goes on to speak about how there are antichrists that have come. And so because there has been such pushback, such opposition to the gospel, that is another evidence that it is the last hour. Now, we can look at at verse 7, particularly that first part, and it can cause us all sorts of concern. We're going to actually talk a little bit about how I think the church has gotten way off in focusing on the end of all things. But I think that it should have two initial major effects on us as pilgrims. First of all, it gives us hope in the midst of our pilgrim journey. Listen, this world which hates Christ will not stand forever. We already know who's won and who will bring about victory. Christ. He is victor. And we are His children. So there's no doubt in our minds. If you read through the book of Revelation, you see the end of all things coming to, coming to close. Is there ever any hint of the possibility that Christ would lose? No. Revelation's great theme, Jesus wins. 
And so the wickedness we see around us that, that vexes our souls, the, the persecution of believers that we see, our own persecution, these things are, as Paul says, a light momentary affliction because it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. This is the joy that we have. So, yes, are we afflicted by this world? Certainly, but it's light, and praise the Lord, it's momentary. Christ will win. And so as it brings hope to us in the midst of our sojourney, in the midst of our journey, it also brings perspective. I think one of the things that really lies at the heart of what it means to be a pilgrim is to recognize that all this stuff, it's going to burn. We do not belong to this world. Firstly, because we've been called out of the world by God's grace. But secondly, because we know that this world will not last. You realize that every possession you hold dear Everything that you consider important from a physical perspective will melt with fervent heat. Notice what, second, what Peter says in 2 Peter. Since all these things, everything, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, you look at this world and it's going to be destroyed, so it should have an impact on how you live your life now. Don't be tied to this world. Why? Because we're waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. We want the end of all things to come. Because at that moment, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, what are we waiting for? Our hope is not set in this world. We await a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Won't you love it when we're able to live in a land that righteousness dwells in it? That's what we look forward to. So what should matter most to us? What does Jesus say? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures where? On earth. Why? Moth and rust destroy it, and thieves break in and steal. Jesus here doesn't even talk about the final judgment. He just talks about the way that sin is corrupting the world. Everything we own from a physical standpoint, including our bodies, will wear away underneath the curse. Nothing lasts on this earth. But instead, we're to lay up for ourselves treasures where? In heaven. In the kingdom. Where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. And then here's the key. Where your treasure is, what's going to be there also? Your heart. The heart of a pilgrim fully believes what Peter is saying here in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. That's not a scary thing. That's not a frightful thing. It's a hopeful thing. And so we look not to a kingdom of this world, but to a kingdom beyond this world. 
Our hearts are settled and encouraged when we look there. So, with these words in the beginning of verse 7, Peter calls us to probe our own hearts and to see where they are. Where is our treasure? Because that's where our heart will be. Where's your heart this morning? Where do you find in it the things that value and bring you satisfaction in this world? See, one of the joys of having treasures in heaven is that the greatest treasure, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is there. And so we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And someone who does that is not tied to the things of this world. That's one of the major reasons why we are pilgrims. Because we don't love this world that is soon to end. So the conclusion of history brings urgency to the pilgrim's purpose. But secondly, and we're going to spend the rest of our time here this morning looking at this, the need of prayer brings urgency to the pilgrim's purpose. So what is our response? The end of all things is at hand. In one sense, we could maybe take what the president said and said, we are close to nuclear Armageddon, all right, which we look at as the end of all things. How do we respond? Notice what Peter says. Therefore, be self-controlled. And what? Sober-minded. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Let's be honest. The prospect of the end of the world is alarming to us. Again, you know, I saw that headline and I'm like, Ah, I mean, that was my initial reaction. And what tends to happen is when we see things like that, we begin to lose our minds a little bit. We can see it in apocalyptic movies. How many of you have ever seen an apocalyptic movie where the president or the joint chiefs of staff or whatever it is, they always say, well, we can't let people know because we don't want to start a hysteria or a panic. It's sort of human nature to respond that way when we see things. There was a show, I think it was on the Discovery Channel years ago, called Doomsday Preppers. Anyone ever watched Doomsday Preppers? And so you, you, you would talk to these people that were essentially absolutely sure that something catastrophic, apocalyptic was going to happen. So what did they do? Did they set their hope in Christ? No, they set their hope in preparation which included things like bunkers and, and putting up like ages of food available and, and all sorts of different things. Now, understand, there's nothing wrong with being prepared. I'm not trying to come down on that. But our hope must never be in our preparation. Where is the pilgrim's hope? In Christ. And so the believer does not respond these hysterical ways. Our mind does not become hysterical, nor do we let our actions fall outside of our control. We are sober-minded and self-controlled. Our minds affect our actions. That's something we looked at last week. So how do we... I'm going to keep you guys awake today. So, so how, how do we 
do that? Well, we have to not let our actions run out of control as we become drunk on the concerns that our minds tend to churn in our heads. Now, here's where I think the church in almost full scale in America, we've lost sight of what Peter is saying to us here. There have been for many, many decades an unhealthy obsession with the end times among American churches. Now, should we preach the whole counsel of God? Absolutely. Should we talk about the end of the world as it's described in God's Word? Absolutely. But our, our problem is that we want to be able to micromanage every detail of the end of the world, at least our response to it. So, so we spend time thinking about, well, maybe I can predict when Jesus is coming back. And there's been a litany of so-called prophecy experts who have made predictions. And, and here's the thing, all right? It's uh, Sunday, uh, October 9th, 2022, and everybody who said that Jesus was going to come back before this, were they right or wrong? They were wrong. There are, have been countless amount of ink spilled and numerous hours wasted with an obsession with movies about this prophecy or books about this prophecy, about prophecy. There have been bold proclamations of this is the Antichrist to identifying the mark of the beast. And I've seen everything from credit cards being said to be the mark of the beast to now grain-sized little capsules that they can put in your, in your hand. That's the mark of the beast. The end of the world preoccupies the minds of believers, not in a healthy way. But I think it's been even more amplified when we look at how many Christians responded to COVID-19. During the age of COVID, we saw people talking about this is the beginning of the end. We heard conspiracies that this was the Illuminati working behind the scenes to bring about a one-world government. Christians would start connecting dots without evidence, and conspiracy theories began to multiply in the church, so much so that ungodly, wicked conspiracy things like QAnon became somewhat acceptable among Christian groups. And before COVID, level-headed thinking Christians would have completely rejected these things. But... It seemed like the end of all things was at hand. So instead of looking to what Peter tells us to do, what did we do? Did we become self-controlled and sober-minded? We went the opposite way. We lost our minds and became very conspiratorial, very suspicious of everything. Now, here's the reality. Who's in control of the world? Who's in control of the world? God! And so even if there's some weird conspiracy that's right out there, God is providential over it all. So I think COVID revealed an alarming lack of clear thinking and self-control among the church. We let the hysteria of a global camp pandemic creep into the church and we turned not to the Lord, but we turned as we are so prone to do to our own ways. 
And what do we desperately need? Do we need more of ourselves? We need more of Christ. Turning to the Lord is what we desperately need. And how do we turn to the Lord? What does Peter tell us that we do to turn to the Lord? We pray. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Uncontrolled thinking, uncontrolled actions call us to depend more and more on ourselves. Remember, the way we think affects the way we act. And if we're constantly focusing on the concerns and cares of a world that's coming to an end, rather than letting that reality drive us away from being tied to this world, sometimes we tie ourselves more to it. And we worry and we're concerned and, and we forget things like, well, if God cares for the flowers of the field and the grass of the field, will he not care for you? We walk into a store and we're not able to get the exact brand of milk that we like and we lose our minds. I mean, we laugh about that, but that's what was happening and still is happening. Can't get my certified organic soy milked from cows that lived underneath palm trees, milk. And so if our grocery store shelves become empty, we immediately turn to hoarding. I've got to look to what? My own way. We start to worry. Infighting begins among true believers because, well, well, this election is the most important election in the world, and you've got to vote exactly how I want to, or else you're not truly right with God. Now listen, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have biblical principles that guide us when we cast our vote, but we need to be gracious to other believers. In all of this, who are we focusing on to save us from the end of all things? Ourselves. And tragically, when we focus on and depend on ourselves, we become less and less dependent on God. And how is that seen? How is it shown that we are depending less and less on God? We don't pray. The NIV translates verse 7 this way. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of a sober mind so that you may pray. And there is a causal link here to some extent. Peter is saying, if you want to pray, you must, particularly in consideration of the end of all things, be self-controlled and sober-minded. The implication is that if we do not have sober minds that bring about self-control, guess what we're not going to do? We're not going to pray. Because why pray if we've got it all under control, right? So Peter is lacking or linking a lack of prayer to self-dependence. We lack prayer in our lives because we lack faith in God. We're going to look at that in just a moment. And so the gospel, which is right thinking, is it not? Is there anything more right thinking than to focus on the gospel? No. So the gospel, which is right thinking, calls us to abandon dependence upon ourselves entirely. Now, we tend to think about the gospel saying, well, I'm not going to depend on myself for salvation. And that's true. 
But you realize that Christ's call for us to depend on Him is not a call just to say, oh, I can get to heaven. It's a call to depend on Him in everything in our lives. What you do at your work, what you say to your family, how you live your life before your friends, every aspect of your life is to be shaped by the gospel. Everything. But what do we do? Well, I know that when I get to heaven... I will say, why should I be allowed into heaven? And I'll say, because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. And that's a glorious testimony. But listen, if it doesn't affect every other aspect of your life, you likely don't have real faith. And the Bible bears that out in multiple passages. So I fear that many of us in this room today, are happy to trust Jesus with our eternal souls, but we're unwilling to trust Him with our children, with our careers, with our finances, with our health, with our government, with our elections, with our possessions, with our happiness, with our struggles, with our persecutions, with our difficulties. In most or all of these things, we are still like sheep that go astray, turning every one of us to His own way. Faith in God is demonstrated through a vigorous prayer life. So I want to probe a little bit deeper here. I was immensely convicted by this passage this week, especially as I, for whatever reason, sort of did this exercise. I want you to think back on this last week. A week has 168 hours in it. That is 10,080 minutes, right? So you have 10,080 minutes. I want you to, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, all right? But I want you to just honestly think back on your week. Did you spend at least 15 minutes in prayer every day this week? 15 minutes. I want you to think about that for a second. All right, if we spent 15 minutes of our day in prayer, maybe you, you say, yes, I did that. And you feel, well, I answered the pastor, at least in my own mind, I answered the pastor's question right. I did 15 minutes every day. You know what percentage of your time that is in a week? 1%. 1%. Do you want to stand before God? I mean, the reality is you do stand before God. Every moment of your life is lived before the face of God. You gave him 1%. Let's think of, of time as, as a resource and think of it in regards to the tithe, all right? The tithe is 10%. Now, I'm not someone who's going to say from an offering perspective we have to give 10%. I think that we have grace giving and we give as the Lord has enabled us. I think 10% is a good starting point, but if you're unable to do 10%, just do what the Lord allows you to do. If you're able to do more, you should do more. That's not the, the point of the discussion today, but I just thought, let's look at 10%. I think that's a legitimate sort of baseline number. What would that look like if we gave 10% of our time to the Lord in a given week? That's 16.8 hours a week. Two and a half, or two, I'm sorry, 2.4 hours, two, almost two and a half hours a day. Now, I know, what you're, I know what's going through your mind right now. You're like, two and a half hours a day? You don't know what my schedule's like. 
there's no way I can spend nearly two and a half hours a day in prayer. Well, what fills up your time besides prayer? What are you doing? You watching your favorite television program? Spending time on your hobbies? I think if we're truly honest, we'll discover that each and every one of us, myself included, and listen, I'm not putting up these numbers to be legalistic and say you have to reach this to be right with God. That's, I'm just asking a question. Can you do more in prayer? I think each and every one of us falls very short of what we should be doing in prayer. And it's an indication that we don't trust in God like we ought to. We rather trust in ourselves. How much time, how much of our lives does God want us to spend in prayer to Him? All of it. All of it. Look at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. Pray. When, how, when should we cease praying? Never. Pray without ceasing. Now, this doesn't mean that we spend every moment of our waking lives on our knees in prayer with heads bowed and eyes closed and hands folded. But it does mean that prayer should not be such the minuscule part of our life that it is. In fact, we should be always communicating with the Lord at every moment of our day. That, you realize the, do, you, do you realize the privilege that is? Look, if, if I wanted to talk to the president, all right, the most important person in America, and I, I get, somehow get his cell phone number and I call it up, and, and I say, President Biden, this is Phil. I just want to chat. He's going to hang up the phone, and then there are going to be federal agents at my door. I don't have access to the president that way. You know who usually takes my phone calls is my parents. I call my parents. But I, I tell you, I swear, I don't know why they have these cell phones sometimes, because they don't answer them. And generally, they take my phone calls. Listen, God never turns a deaf ear to your prayers. You can come to Him at any moment. That's, talk about the riches of His grace. And how do we value that when we barely ever pray? Take your Bibles, turn with me quickly to Luke chapter 18. I told Rita, she's in the back and she's doing the kids, I said, I'm going to be done early today. <laughs> and I honestly thought, because I'm only preaching on one point. Yeah, let's see how that went. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. I'll have it up on the screen as well. Jesus tells his disciples a parable for a purpose. And this is interesting. One of the very few areas where we see, I mean, there are a couple other ones, but Jesus is abundantly clear here why he gives this parable. To the effect that they ought what? Always to what? Pray and then not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So I don't think there are any judges out here today, but, you know, I think sometimes that's sort of par for the course. 
And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect a man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by, continually, by her continually coming. So in other words, this widow annoyed the judge to death so that he actually acted. Now what does that have to do with prayer? And Jesus brings it to a close. He says, He says, And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, whom he is assuming to be doing what? Crying to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Jesus tells this parable for one reason, to compare a heartless, wicked judge with God. And a heartless, wicked judge can be annoyed into doing the right thing. I think that's sort of how like, the IRS works on that principle. We're going to annoy you to do the right thing. Is not God so much better, so much more wise and loving than this judge who doesn't respect men or fear God? Will he give his people justice? These rhetorical questions should bring out within our hearts a resounding, yes, God will bring justice. And then Jesus strikes at our hearts. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, which would be, as Peter tells us, the end of all things, what's Christ's question to His disciples? Will He find faith on earth? You see the connection between faith and prayer? If we truly believe in Christ, what will we be doing? Praying. He speaks of his coming again, the event that brings all of human history to an end. And as Luke says in Luke 17, 29, when Christ comes, it will be like the day when Lot went out from Sodom and fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. The end of all things. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So, Christ is, this passage is immensely convicting. Are you praying? I don't mean just occasionally. I mean, are you living in prayer? When Jesus comes back, will he find, and I'd like to just adjust this a little bit, will he find prayer on the earth? Peter's asking the same question. The end of all things is at hand. Jesus could come back now. 
And we would rejoice, amen. We would, we would rejoice in the coming of our Lord. But will He find us faithfully praying? So, very quickly, I just want to give five ways that we can start cultivating a prayer life. This is very practical stuff. First of all, I think what this passage does as it probes deeper into our hearts is it shows us and brings us to recognize our weakness in prayer. I don't think anybody up here should be standing up and saying, I should be on the pedestal as a praying person. I think of Jesus when He's going to the garden to pray and He brings the cream of the crop, all right? It says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He goes a little further. He takes Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, the ones that saw Him transformed. He prays, if it's possible, let the cup pass from me. He comes back and He sees Peter, the one who proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is Peter doing? He's sleeping. The cream of the crop from a spiritual perspective that we would think on the outside. And Jesus says, look, you couldn't watch with me one hour. Watch and what? Pray. That you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but our flesh is what? Weak. We have to recognize that we are weak when it comes to our prayer lives. Which means then that we need to love Christ more. What our hearts want will affect the way we think, which will then affect our actions. If we truly love Christ more, will we not want to be communicating with Him more? And then that means that as we love Christ more, we learn to trust Him with everything in our lives. Not just the fact that when we stand at the pearly gates, we're going to get in because we've trusted in Jesus. We trust Him with our health, We trust Him with our careers. We trust Him with our finances. We trust Him with everything. Everything. We trust Him with what's going on in COVID. We trust Him with the elections that are going to happen. No matter who comes to power and who is taken out of power, is not God still on the throne? So we trust Him with everything. And then we renew our minds. Our hearts affect our heads, so we must set our minds on the right things. Paul says that we're to set our minds on things where? Above, not things of the earth. Peter's saying the same thing. And then we pray, pray, pray. And then when we've prayed some more, what do we do again? Pray. Pray without ceasing. The final act is obedience. This is our responsibility. Just very quickly, some helpful suggestions. I know this is the sermon that never ends. Begin and end each day in prayer. And I don't mean this from like the, you know, you think about the typical, you know, kids say their prayers before they go to bed. I mean true, concentrated time. The minute you get up and, and when you're laying in bed, before your, before your head hits the pillow, pray. 
bring to God at the end of the day all your concerns and cares that were laden upon you and cast them at his feet. And before your day begins, step out walking in faith that he is with you every moment. Begin and end each day in prayer. Pray every hour. If you're not at work, try to pray three to five minutes every hour. And then if you're at work, one to two minutes because your employer isn't, isn't paying you to spend time on your knees. But that doesn't mean you still can't be in communication with God while you're working, right? And then devote 15 to 20 minutes every day to concentrated prayer. All right, again, do you have the time to do this? Yes. You do have the time to give 15 to 20 minutes in prayer every day. In fact, you have the time to give more. But this is a good starting point. Look to increase this. Pray with your family. You know, the Old Testament is filled with examples of how families would come together and that they would speak often of Christ and they would walk every day in in communion with each other as they communed with God. That's the way it should be in our families. Pray with your family. You say, well, my, my family isn't around. Well, call them. Put them on FaceTime. Get a, get a group a group call going. They used to talk about party lines. Let's get prayer lines going. Pray with your family. And then finally, pray with your church. Look, we have a Wednesday evening service here. And listen, I know life is busy. I know life's busy. I know work's demanding. I know some of you live at a great distance from the church. I, I get that. I'm not, I'm not trying to be legalistic about this, but there are sweet times of fellowship that we have when we pray together as a body of believers. Over and over again in the Scriptures, there is a call to pray for each other. And so this is all I ask that you do. I just ask that this Wednesday at 6.30, you stop and think about what you're doing. And you say to yourself, could I have been there? That's all I'm asking. Set an alarm on your phone and just see. And if you couldn't be here, fine. But then pray as we're praying at the same time. Listen, these suggestions, these things that are said here, it's not legalism. These aren't, I'm not saying if you do these things, you're going to somehow earn favor with God. Don't take them in that way. And certainly don't seek to do these things to make me happy. Well, pastor said, that's not, that's not what I'm saying here. See, the reality is we begin with understanding that we are failures in our prayer lives. Is not God's grace sufficient to cover our failings in our prayer life through the blood of Christ? Praise God they are. Our only hope is in Christ's righteousness, not in how we pray. But Christ's righteousness works its way out in our lives. What was Jesus often doing? Praying. He would spend days in prayer. Listen, the end of all things draw near, draws near. 
We know how it's going to end. Praise God, we know how it's going to end. So how do we respond? Well, let's have renewed minds so that we can pray. To take Christ's words in Luke again, when Jesus returns at the end of history, will he find you praying? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the truth that we find in it. Lord, your word is convicting. Father, burn within our hearts an insatiable desire to pray. Father, may we not cast off vain repetitions, but Father, may we pray to you with hearts captivated and trusting in who you are. Work in our midst by your Spirit today. We pray this in Christ's name.